On June 17, 2015, 21-year-old Dylan Roof walked into a Wednesday night Bible study at Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. He was warmly welcomed and greeted. And in response to the warm welcome that he experienced, he pulled out a gun and brutally murdered nine of God's children who were trying to do nothing more than to show him the love of Christ. When Drillin Roof was tried for those crimes, the judge allowed some of the family members of those who were killed to read statements in the courtroom. These are some snippets of some of the things that they chose to say. The daughter of Ethel Lance read the following statement at Dylan Roof's trial. I forgive you. You took something really precious away from me. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. It hurts me. It hurts a lot of people. But God forgive you and I forgive you. Anthony Thompson, the husband of Myra Thompson, who was killed, said, I forgive you and my family forgives you. We would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent and confess. Give your life to the one who matters the most, Christ, so he can change your ways no matter what happens to you and you'll be okay. Do that and you'll be better off than you are right now. The granddaughter of Daniel Simons said, Although my grandfather and the other victims died at the hands of hate, everyone's plea for your soul is proof that they lived and loved and their legacies will live and love. I want to thank the court for making sure that hate doesn't win. And the sister of DePayne Middleton doctor said, I'm a work in progress and I acknowledge that I am very angry. But my sister taught me that we are the family that love built. We have no room for hate, so we have to forgive. I also thank God. There is perhaps no greater witness to a world that needs to know that God loves them than when Christians choose to love their enemies. There is no greater sign of the reality that Jesus is who he said he was than when we choose to love our enemies. This morning, we're going to think and hear about that truth. I'd like to invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five, it's page 787 in the Bibles that the church provides. Matthew chapter five, we're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, the sort of preeminent teaching given to humanity when Jesus stood up and declared these truths on this earth. Now we started with three opening verses of what's called the Beatitudes, 
We now are jumping to the end of chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. We're not ignoring the intervening verses. What we're doing is we're just taking snippets of the Sermon on the Mount now. We're going to come back and do all the parts we've skipped this summer. The reason for that is, is that as I prayed about this and sort of laid out the sermon series, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is such a powerful teaching, but it actually has another really cool aspect to it, meaning you can sort of jump into and out of the Sermon on the Mount and you don't have to necessarily have heard what came before or what came after, which makes it really powerful in the summer when so many of us have various things going on. And so we've moved the majority of it to the summer. The rest of Matthew's gospel works better if you sort of have what comes before week after week after week. And so we've taken the majority of the Sermon on the Mount and we're gonna cover that in the summer when it's a little easier uh, to sort of hear one and maybe miss one because you're on vacation or gone. And so that's why we're covering it this way. So we have this week in the Sermon on the Mount and I think maybe uh, two more, I'll have to check. But anyway, this week we're at the end of chapter five where Jesus begins in verse 43 by saying, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. As we hear Jesus tell those of us who are Christians that we have to love our enemies... We need to begin by talking about the concept of forgiveness. You heard forgiveness in the quotes that I read from the atrocity that happened in 2015 at Emmanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And in order to understand what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying, we need to understand something that is actually relatively confusing in the Bible about forgiveness. And what is confusing is that the Bible uses the same word forgiveness in two different situations. The first is the Bible uses the word forgiveness where you have a situation where someone has sinned against you or done something wrong and they acknowledge it. There's confession, there is contrition. The person comes and says, I shouldn't have done that. They are cut to the heart. We feel convicted for things we've done wrong against God and we go to God and we confess our sins. The Bible uses the word forgiveness in situations where there is an acknowledgement that something wrong has happened, where there is confession, where there is attempts to make amends. And in those situations, the Bible talks about forgiving the person who has wronged you. And it uses another word along with forgiveness. It is the word reconciliation. 
When we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Where there is sin and confession, forgiveness means reconciliation, a restoration of a relationship. Sin hinders our relationship with God and sin breaks our relationship with others. When we confess, when there is an acknowledgement that we have done something wrong, forgiveness in those situations means reconciliation. Now what gets very confusing is the Bible also used that exact word forgiveness in a different situation, related but different. And in the second situation, there is no confession of sin. There is no acknowledgement that a wrong has happened. The person who has harmed you won't admit it. Perhaps it's because they're unable to see it, Perhaps it's because they're hard-hearted and don't care. They may even have passed away and be unable to hear how they've caused you pain. Whatever the reason may be, there is a second situation where a wrong has been committed and there is no confession, no acknowledgement of sin. The confusing thing is the Bible uses the word forgiveness in that situation too, but means something slightly different. In the first situation, where there is confession, the word forgiveness means reconciliation. In the second situation, where there is no confession, what forgiveness means is love your enemies. You see, there is no reconciliation in that second situation. You can feel it in our passage. Look what Jesus calls on us to do for our enemies. Verse 44, pray for those who persecute you. Why? Well, what does God do for those who are his enemies? Verse 45, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and sends rain on the unrighteous. Question. What do sunshine, rain, and prayer have in common? All three of them, they do give life, I like that. All three of them are done from a distance. God causes his sun to shine in heaven. Rain falls from heaven. When we pray for those who are persecuting us, we are praying for them in the quiet of our homes, in our prayer closets. We are not praying with the people who are persecuting us. You can feel in this passage there is no reconciliation because there's not been an acknowledgement of sin. There can be no reconciliation where there is no confession. But in those situations, you and I are still called on by God to do something. We're called on to love our enemies. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. There's no reconciliation in that passage. What that passage is talking about is that you and I are still called by God to love our enemies. What does it mean to love our enemies? It means to not seek revenge. It means to pray for those who have hurt us. It means as far as it's up to us to try our best, albeit from a distance, to live at peace with others who are wanting to do harm to us. It means offering potentially food or sunshine, small gifts from a distance to those who have harmed us. It's doing exactly what the family members did that I read to you at the beginning of the sermon. God is not asking those people to not press charges. God is not asking those people to welcome Dylan Roof into their families. To my understanding, there's been, even to this day, no confession or repentance or acknowledgement on Dylan Roof's part that what he did was horrific and satanic and totally evil. In that case, God is not asking those family members to somehow be reconciled to him, to somehow welcome him in, to somehow try to get past what he did and no longer associate him with that sin. That's not what God is asking them to do. What God is asking them to do is exactly what they did, was somehow in the midst of absolute, the worst possible pain, someone taken from you that you love desperately, to find a way to say, I choose not to hate you. I choose to pray for your salvation. I choose not to get angry with God if he still lets the sun shine on you tomorrow. I choose not to be bitter at God if he still allows you food to eat from the rains that come from heaven. I loved the way one of them said it like, look, I'm a work in progress. This is not something that comes easily. But what they did is exactly what Jesus is asking us to do. Find a way from a distance, across a courtroom, <laughs> from some distance away, to still in some act of kindness say, I don't wish on you the same evil that you did to me. The best example of this, forgiving somebody, loving somebody where there is no confession is Jesus as he's dying on the cross. Do you remember what some of his last words were that he said? Father, forgive them they don't know what they're doing. This is not the case where there's been confession. Jesus is not asking God to take those who are crucifying him and welcome them into his family. He is not asking that they'd be admitted to heaven unless they confess. It's the second case where a wrong is happening and at the moment the wrong is happening, what Jesus is asking for from God the Father is that God not give to them immediately what they deserve. What do you think someone deserves who would dare crucify their own creator? At that moment, what they deserve is absolute damnation, separation from God, the instant they raise their hand against Jesus. Jesus. 
What should a holy, righteous, loving father do to somebody who treats his son that way? What Jesus is saying is, Father, please don't give them what they deserve. Please give them another day of sunshine. Please give them a little bit more rain. Why? Give them some time to realize what they've done. And his prayer is answered because heaven does not strike them dead immediately. And as a result, at least the centurion who's there realizes, if somebody's going to say this about me, if somebody's going to ask at the moment that I'm crucifying him that bad things wouldn't happen to me, I want to know that God. And the centurion comes to faith and then experiences reconciliation with God. But Jesus is giving us a beautiful example of what it means to love one's enemies. It is to not wish evil upon them in return for the evil they've done to us. It doesn't mean we're reconciled to them. It doesn't mean that everything's fine. It just means we stop hating them. We stop being angry with God for when he shows some level of kindness, sunshine, rain. And from a distance, we pray, Lord, have mercy. Lord, save them. Lord, don't treat them the way their sins deserve. Now, this raises the question for you and I today. Who are our enemies? I think it's pretty easy for Jesus to see who his enemies were when he was being crucified. It's the people who were hanging him on that cross. I think it was easy for the people whose loved ones had been killed at that church in South Carolina to see that Dylan Roof was their enemy. But what about for us? Who are our enemies that Jesus is calling us to love here? Well, the great thing about recognizing that what we're talking about when we say love your enemies is we're talking about anyone who has sinned against you and has not confessed it or acknowledged it or tried to make amends. The useful thing about this is that we can realize we have lots of opportunities to put this into practice, even with people we might not normally label our enemy. It's a strong term. But what Jesus is talking about is that coworker at work who's stabbed you in the back. Yes, you may not think of them as a mortal enemy, but the idea if they refuse to acknowledge it, you have a chance to put this passage into practice in that situation. A bully at school. Or a person who used to be your friend at school who now ignores you and has made life more difficult. You might not initially think to put the word enemy on that situation, but if it's a person who has hurt you and refuses to acknowledge it, it's an opportunity to put this passage into practice. A spouse who, yes, you love, but right now, it feels like that person is doing something that is harmful and painful and he or she cannot see it, will not see it, or you have no opportunity to talk about it. It's a chance to put this passage into practice. A sibling who is in a rivalry with you where you're like, I'm not trying to compete with you, but you can feel it. A chance to put this into practice. A contractor who oversells and then underdelivers can be an enemy to put this in practice for. A person who doesn't pay their bill after you've done work for them. 
These are all opportunities for us to love our enemies. They don't have to be lifelong enemies. They just simply have to be a person who's done something and refuses to acknowledge it. A rebellious child. A friend who made a comment in haste that ended up wounding you deep in your soul. These are opportunities for us to obey Jesus. Now, what is it that we're supposed to do? One of the great things about the Sermon on the Mount is it may not be easy to do, but Jesus puts the cookies on the lowest shelf. It's pretty clear. (laughs) What should we do? Verse 44, pray for them. Pray for them. So as you think through, is there anybody in your life right now who's done something to you that you haven't been able to get them to see that or they're not able to own that or even they're not even around anymore to fix it? What is God calling on you and I to do? Simply pray for that person. You can pray for their salvation, for that bully at school. You can pray for your sibling that they not get what they deserve. You can pray for that friend that betrayed you that God would still let the sun shine on them. You can pray that God would be kind to them because his kindness leads to repentance. Pray for them. Now before we leave this passage, I want to acknowledge that it's probably not an accident that that church in South Carolina was named Emmanuel, A-M-E. Emmanuel is the name given to Jesus at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. It means God with us. And before we leave this passage, we need to acknowledge that while all we're being asked to do is pray for those who persecute us, that God himself went far beyond even what is talked about here and how he's chosen to love his enemies. All we're called to do is imitate what he's done in letting the sunshine and the rain fall from a distance. But we would not be doing justice to this passage or to Jesus if we didn't acknowledge that God himself went far beyond what he's asking us to do here. Earlier in the book of Romans, Paul writes this about how God treated us when we were his enemies. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for you and for me. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And then listen to this next phrase. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? What God did goes far beyond what we're asked to do. 
far beyond even the best example that humans have ever given. What God chose to do for his enemies, for those who wanted nothing to do with them, for those who had chosen disobedience, for those who had rejected and rebelled against his rule, what God chose to do was not just have the sunshine and the rainfall. He chose to draw near, to become one of us, that in the person of Jesus, God has drawn close to us. And then in an act that is unfathomable, this same God who became a human for all of eternity out of love for us, chose not just to draw near to us, but to die for us. To die for us, his enemies. Who does that? Look, it's an amazing thing to show up in a courtroom and to say, look, I'm struggling, but I'm willing to not hate you. That is the best that humans have to offer, and it's beautiful. But what God did is he didn't show up and say, I'm struggling not to hate you. He showed up and he said, I love you so much, I'm going to die for you. This is how God demonstrates his love for us. See, we think, that okay, well, if I do really good things, then God will be kind to me. That's not really love. Jesus is trying to say that everybody does that. God demonstrated his love for you and I in that while we were trying to run away, while we were turning our back on him, while we wanted nothing to do with him, while we were essentially telling him, get out of my life, let me do what I want to do. It was then that God chose to die for us. Now, in just a minute, we're going to celebrate communion. But before we do, I got to say this to anybody who's listening online, anybody who's present here today who has not yet accepted what Jesus has done for you. Please, please hear what we're talking about at Christmas. Please understand what it is that we're trying to communicate. If you have not confessed to God ways that you have fallen short, you are currently unable to be reconciled to God. You can't have a relationship with him. You are, from God's point of view, his enemy, which means you got a choice. You can keep living your life just the way you are, and you will receive from a kind and loving God sunshine and rain, at least for a season. He'll let you have some success at work. He'll give you meaningful relationships. Why? Because he loves you. He'll allow you to continue to have some joys in life, to continue to experience blessings in this life. Not because he's okay with what you're doing, but because he loves you. But the thing I want to say to you is, why would you leave it there? You have another choice, and that is to simply acknowledge what you've done. What I've done against a holy and good and just God is that we've not obeyed him. We've not lived the way we're supposed to. We didn't love our enemies the way he loved us. We did not seek good for other people. We have been selfish. We have ignored things he's asked us to do. And if you will simply confess, Lord, I'm sorry, well, then you get something far more than just sunshine and rain. You get a relationship with God. 
a reconciliation. God inviting you to be part of his family. God giving you eternal life. God coming to dwell with you. God walking alongside of you through life. God being your father. And so what I say to you is, look, you're going to be loved either way. But why not? Why not let a God who loves you enough to have Jesus die for you, why not let him pour out the fullness of that love on you through Jesus? How do you do that? Just in the quiet of your heart. Do with God what you want someone else to do with you when they've sinned against you. You want them just to admit it. You want them just to acknowledge it. You want them just to sort of say, okay, look, I hurt you. You want them to try to make amends and say, I don't want to do that again. All you have to do in your heart is do that exact same thing to God. And say, God, I'm sure I've probably hurt you. I'm sure I've done things you haven't approved of. I'm sorry for those things. And when you do, you receive from God forgiveness that is reconciliation.